This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we hear what appears to be the doubt of John the Baptist and the challenging response of Jesus that honors him. Yeah, so this would be probably a good time to say, hey, in your show notes, we've got um, a link to, you said it was episode 91, Brent? Yep. We uh, At the beginning, when we started walking through the Gospel of Matthew, at one point we had a conversation very early about John the Baptist, and we asked all these questions that we on purpose left unresolved for a later date, and this is that later date. We're going to wrap up some of these questions. If you remember, can you remember what we talked about, Brent? Talking about something. 14 episodes ago, can I remember? That's asking a lot. I can barely remember what we talked about last episode. I know, right? Okay, so... Uh, the conversation revolved around some of the things that John the Baptist was saying as he was out baptizing people. He was calling people to the Jordan River, wanting to do what we call Tevila Tshuva, this baptism of repentance. And he was saying there was two teachings that came out uh, that John the Baptist was really railing about. One of those was uh, um, two metaphors. One of them was that the axe is at the root of the tree and God's going to chop down this tree and he's going to throw it into the fire. And then uh, the other image that John the Baptist was using was there was a winnowing fork, and that winnowing fork was in his hand, and he stands at his threshing floor, and he is about ready to winnow the grain. Now, I think most of our listeners probably understand what winnowing is, but what's winnowing, Brent? Explain winnowing to me. I don't know. I don't winnow grain. You don't winnow grain? Me either. So winnowing is this... I imagine it's like something to get the little grain heads out of the stock or whatever. Yeah. So you've got like this big... Uh, it's not quite... It's it's much more substantial than like a, um, a pitchfork. It's It's got a lot bigger blades than that. I picture like what you see people like coffee um, planters using when they lay their coffee beans out. Uh, and the, sometimes in coffee shops, the Starbucks here in Moscow is a big picture of the... People putting their coffee beans out on the in the sun, or however it is that they're whatever they're doing in that photo, but it looks a lot more like that. It's a big, huge fork, and you're going to take the grain, and you're going to toss it up in the air. And the idea is, you do this in a slight breeze, and all of the chaff over time blows away. And so, so really, the whole process is you put all of your grain on a threshing floor. Threshing floor is a very large stone, a big chunk of bedrock usually sticking out of the ground, and then you have like a uh, you have a uh, a threshing board, usually pulled by maybe a donkey, or it could be servants or whatever, and they're they're going to pull this threshing board over the grain, and it breaks up the grain. So your grain's falling to the bottom, and your chaff is getting separated. It's doing actually the separating work, and then is when that's when you grab your winnowing fork and you throw everything up in a breezy air, and the chaff blows away, and the heavier grain it falls to the threshing floor, and that's how you separate the chaff from the grain that you need. So this image here is that God is standing at His threshing floor. And apparently the grain has been uh, sifted, it's been threshed, and now he's going to separate the chaff from the grain. Now, the image of that is God is at his threshing floor, and we talked about this in that episode, but it's been, like you said, 14 episodes again uh, ago. Um, Why the image of threshing floor? Can you remember, Brent? Really putting you on the spot today. Review City. Mm, Well, it's got to be in the text, right? (laughs) Well, it is in the text. Absolutely. Great answer. I like that. Uh, something was built on a threshing floor. Uh, was the temple built? The temple of God, yeah. right? So, so this is a condemnation. Um, this is a this is a prophecy coming out of the mouth of John the Baptist. He is essentially saying God is judging the priesthood. 
And we connected John the Baptist to which group of people, Brent? This one's easy. The Essenes. The Essenes. And the Essenes are that group that had left the priesthood, sometimes completely, sometimes just in part, but they had left the priesthood because they saw it as so corrupt. So it would make sense that John the Baptist is uttering a prophecy about the judgment of God, God standing at his temple, the threshing floor, because the temple's literally built on a threshing floor. And... And he's standing at the threshing floor with the winnowing fork in his hand, and he's about ready to judge the temple system. He's about ready to judge the priesthood. He's about ready to to winnow his grain. And at the end of that episode, because there's a lot of fire, like there's a lot of John the Baptist passion, Elijah fire in those prophecies and those metaphors and those images. And so at the end of that podcast, we ask the question, is John the Baptist, does he have, is his theology correct? Is John the Baptist right? Is God standing at his threshing floor about ready to thresh his grain? Is God, is the ax at the root of the tree, is God about ready to throw his tree into the fire? Is that, is that true? Or, and I think, I think we typically just read the Bible and we're like, well, sure. But then we have other words from like Jesus, like I have not come to judge and condemn, but I've come to save. For God has so loved the world, he sent his only son, not to judge the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. So we have these two ideas and we have to wrestle with, well, who is John the Baptist right? Is he mostly right? Is he slightly right? What's going on there? And so we want to, we want to jump into that today. In Can both be right, I guess? I think in a sense, I think we're going to find out that they, they can't directly, no, but maybe indirectly, there's a there's a yes component to there. It's how you parse out the details. Having said that, Brent, how about you take us to Matthew 11? One, you're going to read it out of the NIV. We have the ESV on hand because the NIV today is just going to butcher this passage. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, can't wait. Oh, hooray! Okay, let's dive in. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Okay, so John the Baptist is in, where is he at? In prison. He's in prison, and he sends word to Jesus saying, Are you the one who was to come? Which is striking, because, what what seems odd about that, Brent? Well, just a few chapters ago, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Right, yeah, that, that passage comes out of John, like this declaration of exactly who Jesus is. In fact, in the John passage that you're quoting there, he actually, in a sense, tells his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples pick up on it, and it says they actually leave John to go follow Jesus. Like the statement that John the Baptist makes is so adamant, blunt, and crystal clear that John's own disciples are like, well, if our rabbi just told us that that's the guy, we're going to go follow that guy and not offend and I'm sure John the Baptist wasn't like, where are you guys going? Like he's probably like, good. <laughs> you heard me. Yes. Excellent. And so, and so those, John has very clearly stated in more than one way and in more than one gospel, like he knows exactly who Jesus is. And now he's in prison and it almost feels like, well, is this faith wavering here? Like, are you the one or not? But when we, when we read it in context, and I've suggested a couple times in this podcast that I think John the Baptist is potentially who, Brent? The Elijah character. Okay. And who else as it relates to Jesus? Uh, his his rabbi. I, I personally have this opinion that John the Baptist is actually Jesus' rebbe. It's his rabbi. It's his teacher um, before so Jesus, Jesus started his. Jesus the Elisha character? What's that? Does that make Jesus the Elisha character? Uh, ooh, I don't know. Never really thought about that. Could. A double-fold blessing of John's ministry. 
just like Elisha wanted a double fold, like a, a two-fold blessing of John the Baptist, not John the Baptist, getting all my characters mixed up, of Elijah's passion and fire. That's interesting. Never really thought about that, but yeah, sure. Um, but if that's true at all, and I'm not suggesting it's essential to reading this passage, it's not, but I hear a rabbi here. Because what was the phrase that came right before he asked the question? He's in prison and he what, Brent, in the NIV there? He heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He heard about the deeds, and it actually says of the Messiah, of the Christ, of Jesus. Like, so it actually identifies Jesus as the guy. And he hears about what Jesus is doing, which is kind of tricky in Matthew. I think Luke might offer us a better picture here. Luke might be the most chronological. And Luke, when you look at Luke, the story that precedes this, and some people would say it's two stories before this, but the story that John would have just heard about is Jesus heals. I see you looking it up. You're racing against the clock. Luke, uh, let's see. I'm going to guess Luke 9. You put me on the spot. I'm going to say 9. It's going to be seven. It's going to be seven. Seven's it. Okay, so two stories earlier, Brent. What's the headline you see in Luke? So Luke, uh, see John the Baptist. We've got before that, Jesus raised the widow's son. Before that, the faith of the centurion. Okay, so Jesus has just healed a centurion's servant. Or a centurion's, uh, it's not the son, it's a servant, if I remember the story correctly. But Jesus is helping and healing a Roman centurion, his household. Like, And I think John the Baptist... He's got some, like, something has spurred his questions here. This isn't a John's literally questioning is Jesus who who he thought he was. He's not having a crisis of faith. John the Baptist is saying, are you Messiah or not? Because you're sure not acting like it. Now, some context here is going to help us. And you've put some pictures in our show notes, Brent. There's two pictures because there are two ideas of what we're going to call Jewish eschatology in Jesus's day. In this second temple period, there are two dominant ideas between eschatology. Eschatology is a word that means the study of the end times. There are two ways that that Jewish thought dealt with what do the end times look like? What does the coming of the end, um, the age to come, they would have called that Olam Chava. We've talked about eternal life. Olam Chava would be the age to come. And then there was also Olam Aveh. Oh, did I get that wrong? I'd have to look that up. But there's this age and there's the age to come. This age and the age to come. There are two ages. And we live in the broken age, this age, the age of this world, the age of darkness. But there is coming... Olam Chava. There's coming the age to come. And the age to come is not a broken age. It's it's everything as it ought to be. It's the kingdom of God reigning and ruling. It's shalom and everything in its proper place. And so how does this age to come arrive? There were two dominant ideas, a very popular one and a not so popular one. The popular idea is what we call two-part Jewish eschatology. It was the popular idea. John the Baptist clearly has what the Essenes had. The Essenes were huge. They were almost, no, they were. They were radical, fringe, as far as what we've got in their writings, as far as what we know through the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were like fanatical, like driven by their eschatology. Like they were those crazy end times people like God is going to come make everything right. And they believed in a two-part eschatology. So if you pull up that slide there, or you'll have it in our chapter breaks, I believe you said, in our chapter notes on your iPod player. <laughs> iPod player. <laughs> I know what we're doing here. If you're listening to a podcast and your podcast player supports <laughs> chapters, you will just see the picture right you, now. You just did that on purpose. You're already because seeing it. I was 
I was reviewing. I was forcing you to review, and you. I started talking about technology, and you just looked at me and you said, "You know, I'm just going to let you do this on your own." I'm just. <laughs> well, I was like, you know, that's uh, okay. all right. All right, we. <laughs> you can have your Bible stuff, and let me talk about the podcast stuff. That's what Brent Billings is thinking right now. So yeah. So anyway, you look at this slide here, and you got two parts. You have this age, and then the idea is that Messiah comes. This a lot, and, and in Jewish thought, this idea is connected to an Elijah character. Sometimes that Elijah is Messiah, like Messiah and Elijah are the same person. And in some uh, Jewish thought, Elijah preceded that person. And there are different prophecies that they cling to for those different worldviews. But however you want to work that, Elijah and or Messiah show up and they usher in the age to come. What that means is, is that uh, Messiah and Elijah show up and they, they, they essentially offer people the chance to repent. They're letting them know, like the age to come is at your doorstep. This is the role that John the Baptist is playing. He's out in the desert baptizing people. And he's saying the kingdom of God is here. Like repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. This is like one of your last chances because what's coming is judgment. The ax is at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is in his hand. The age to come is on our doorstep, and you need to repent and get on the kingdom of God train because this is your this is the last train leaving station. Like that is this two part eschatology. There will be there will be a great judgment. The Romans, all the oppressors, will be dealt with. The Romans will be crushed. God will restore His kingdom, Israel and Judah. And shalom will reign, but all of those evil ones will be done away with. That's two-part eschatology. And you see it clearly in John's preaching, Acts at the root of the tree, winnowing fork is in his hand. And that's why when Jesus heals a Roman centurion, uh, the, the servant, when he heals the servant, John the Baptist hears of this and immediately sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? Because you sure aren't acting like it. You're sure not, you're healing Romans? No, 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 no. That's not how this works. So if you're the Messiah, get about the Messiah's business because this nonsense needs to stop. And I hear the chiding of a former rabbi to his former Talmud saying, hey, I taught you better than this. Not to poke holes in the idea here, um, but would the, would the centurion servant have necessarily been Roman? Not necessarily. Although the, 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 I guess what I'm actually asking is, is it possible that the servant was Jewish? It's possible. I I would definitely not say it's not, it's, it's definitely not even improbable because uh, the Jewish people were definitely slaves and servants. So there's, uh, I don't know how good the possibility is, but it's definitely a possibility. I think the implication of the story is you wouldn't assume so. Yeah. As it's written, it definitely seems like Right. There's, you know, John has some kind of a problem with what's going on. Right. And, right. and the impli- and the, the, um, the request is coming from a Roman centurion. By healing, Jesus says, in fact, and if you remember the story, this, that's the story where Jesus turns and he tells everybody, like, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Like, he makes this Roman centurion, like, he's the point of the story, not the servant. And it's his faith that Jesus calls out and says, this guy, this is your model for what, we're, what we should look like. And this gets John the Baptist a little riled up and confused. So let's go ahead and keep reading uh, until we tell you to stop. Let's see what Jesus' response is to what could be his former rabbi. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. 
The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Okay, so Jesus responds to John. I like some of the other gospel accounts too, because it will. It actually gives the impression that John, John's disciples asked Jesus this question on behalf of John. And it, the implication is like Jesus turns around, he starts healing people. Like he turns around and like just heals people. And then he turns around and says, go tell John what you're seeing. Because the blind see, the lame uh, walk, all, and, and he utters this. Now, what we're seeing here is that Jesus doesn't have John's eschatology. Jesus is not holding to the popular, and that, that two-part eschatology that John ha- held to, that was the popular eschatology, and you can understand why. Because if you're living in a day where you feel like you're under the boot of empire, and you're looking for deliverance, like you want the th- the the trumpet, the thunder, the the huge power and glory. You want the son of man coming in the clouds to render judgment on your enemies. You want the two-part eschatology. You want Dean. You want Dean. Ooh, good reference. Session two reference right there. You want Dean. Absolutely. And, oh, that's so good. I'm like I'm rewriting my <laughs> curriculum right now, like on the go here. Because what Jesus has come to do is not Dean. Jesus has come to do Mishpat. Jesus has come. He's cut. He holds to the next slide. We'll put up there. The next slide is three-part Jewish eschatology. There are not just two ages that bump up against each other with the Messiah ushering in the kingdom with a huge, glorious time of judgment, and there is an overlap of the of this age and the age to come. So what you have is you have the age that we've been living in and Messiah shows up and and or Elijah, Messiah and or Elijah, they show up and they usher in the kingdom. Repent, John the John the Baptist said, for the kingdom of God is here. That's the same message that Jesus takes up upon John's death. Repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has just shown up. But it has not kicked out the kingdom. Instead, it shows up and now when you think about John's teaching, the axe is at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is in his hand. Now think about Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of God is like a... We haven't gotten there yet, Brent, but what is the kingdom of God like? It's like a... Like a mustard seed. Like a mustard seed. Think of how the smallest of all seeds, Jesus says. It's the tiniest little thing. Is that two-part eschatology or three-part eschatology? Uh, three-part. Definitely three-part eschatology. Because it's not... It would be like huge. And Jesus is saying, no, it's like a mustard seed. It's like what else? What's the next reference in... There's a mustard seed followed by... Uh, a woman. What's she doing? She is making bread. Exactly. And she's putting a little bit of yeast. Yeast into a batch of dough, right? So you got a mustard seed, you've got yeast. This is not. John the Baptist and Jesus do not share the same theological understanding of their eschatology. John the Baptist wants loud axes and winnowing forks and fire and water and judgment. And everything that John the Baptist preaches is about judgment and huge and flashy. And this is what we want. And Jesus is like, ah, it's like small stuff. You don't even see to begin with. But once you put it in there, you can't stop it. Like, we'll, we'll get to that teaching later. But Jesus holds to a three-part eschatology. And what this kingdom is going to do is you're going to plant it like a mustard seed. Think about the weeds and the wheat. Do you remember that? Like, that's definitely, I love that one as an example. It's definitely three-part eschatology. John the Baptist would say, no, 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 there are no weeds in wheat. There was weeds, and then God came and planted wheat. Um, But in Jesus' parable, there's weeds and wheat growing together. And they come and they say, do you want us to go pull out the wheat? 
And what does Jesus say? The weeds, excuse me. What does Jesus say, Brent? He says, no, let it grow. You'll destroy the wheat exactly. if you pull out the weeds. If you go to pull out the weeds, you might pull out wheat along with it. So let them grow together. And you have the two ages overlapping. And so that graphic there is going to help you. And what, what this worldview does, this was the least popular, and you can understand why. Nobody wanted to hear this. You're telling me the Romans aren't going to get kicked out of here? Like, right out? No, we're going to plant seeds. Oh, wow. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Like, just what I wanted. Um, but what you're doing is you're planting seeds, and this kingdom is going to overtake. the. This school of thinking existed in the Pharisaical school. So what group did I say loved the two-part eschatology, Brent? The Essenes. The Essenes. Well, guess which group loved the three-part eschatology? The... Yeah. Pharisees? I uh, know. It seems funny, huh? Like, we don't ever think of Jesus agreeing with Pharisees, but Jesus held to Peter. When when Peter writes in the New Testament, we'll talk about this in session four, he writes his, his letter. Uh, he says, do the good deeds, Peter says, because in doing so, we speed up the coming of Christ. That is a Pharisaical worldview based on three-part eschatology. Peter is saying, we live in an overlapping of the two ages. And the more we work to bring kingdom, the more we partner with God. It's not our work that brings kingdom. But the more that we partner with God to bring kingdom, the more we usher in the good and the more we do away with the bad. And eventually there will come a day. See, this is why it's so important to me, because if we, need, if, if we have a Jesus eschatology, we cannot believe the world is getting worse and worse. That's not how Jesus viewed eschatology. The world's not getting worse. The world is getting better. And Christians love to just say, well, you just see the end times are coming. The end times are coming. That is a two-part John the Baptist eschatology. We have to have, we're Jesus followers. We have to have a Jesus eschatology, a three-part eschatology. The world's getting better, not worse. It has to. That's what Jesus taught us would happen. That's what Jesus held to in his own thinking and belief. We don't get to disagree with the rabbi, right? He is, the weeds he, are still growing. The weeds the are still weeds growing. growing too. But the wheat is growing too. And remember we talked about good eye and bad eye, ayin ra'a and ayin tova. Here's our opportunity to have a good eye that fills our body full of light. Okay, so Pharisees, part of the Hasidim, yes. they did the three-part thing. What yes. about the zealots? Also part of the Hasidim. That is a great, great point. They I kind of feel they like their hold, methods oh, would be two-part, but... Yeah, I feel like they'd be two-part, too. I've never even thought about that question or chased that down to an end. So that's a good question. I wonder if they held to a two-part eschatology as a part of the Hasidic group. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were two-parters. So, Jesus, in response to John, now let's put this teaching in context. John sends his disciples and says, are you Messiah or not? Because you're sure not acting like it. And Jesus, in a very rabbin- a beautifully rabbinic way, brings healing, talks about healing the blind. And why does he talk about that, Brent? Why does he talk about healing the blind and the lame walking and the deaf hearing? Like, why, why are those his, and lepers? Let's see, what's the, let me read it here. Um... The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Why does he say those things? Uh, well, I mean, he's bringing mishpat, but I think what you're getting at is that it's in the text. It's in the text. Both those ideas. Thank you. He's, he's not engaging in an axe at the root of the tree. He's not holding an axe. Jesus is not holding a winnowing fork. Jesus is bringing mishpat. And, and the reason that he's talking about those things specifically is you're absolutely right. They're in the text. And so Jesus weaves two passages together, a passage from Isaiah and a passage from Jeremiah. And he weaves those two things together. And he says, John, this is what the prophets foretold. And I love you, Rabbi, but you're reading your text wrong. 
you have the wrong eschatology, which, by the way, makes the last, what's the very last thing he says, which makes no sense if you're studying this teaching. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? What does he say? Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John is where? He's in prison. Now, if we knew our text really well, and we knew the passage that Jesus was quoting, we would realize that Jesus stopped his quotation short of one truth. What one? Like we're talking about blind seeing, deaf hearing, lepers being cleansed, lame walking. And what thing does he leave out, Brent? The captives are set free. The captives are set free. And he purposely leaves that out, which is his way of saying, I'm sorry, Rabbi, not only is your eschatology wrong, but you're going to die in prison. Like, I'm not coming to rescue you. That's not what we're doing. So blessed is the one who is not offended, or in this case, in the NIV, does not stumble on account of me. And now that statement is this heartfelt, please, rabbi. Not my rabbi anymore, but you've sent me out to do my work, but I love you. I respect you. You just got this piece wrong. I hope you're not offended. And what is John's reaction, Brent? He doesn't say anything. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. The text never tells us. I've always wondered. I want to give John the benefit of the doubt. I think those disciples came back and John went, oh, man, that is a hard pill to swallow. But okay. Uh, Who knows? We're just never told. But man, love that story. Love that story. So now, now you can see Jesus is going to turn around. And and just in case you thought like Jesus was having too much fun here, like in case you think he enjoyed correcting uh, his cousin or what could be his former rabbi. If you think he enjoyed that at all, the next paragraph, Jesus turns around to the crowd and he appears to be a little riled up. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And I love that phrase too, by the way, because it says, as his, like I picture them still with an earshot. Like Jesus has just, like it breaks his heart to send this word back to John the Baptist. And so while they're leaving, he starts to utter these words so that they can also take these words back. Standing up, rabbi. gathering their things together. Yes. Still right there in the crowd. around. Oh, this is love. This, is, this whole passage becomes moving to me. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Okay, so now Jesus says, uh, I mean, he's just kind of like told John, given kind of John the what for, and kind of confronted him. And now he turns to the crowds and he says, what did you expect? Is John, is John some softy? Like John came because he's full of fire and he's full of chutzpah and he's full of passion. You didn't come out to the desert to see a reed. You didn't come out to the desert to see somebody dressed in fine clothes. You came out to John because John's a prophet, and John has fire, and John has chutzpah. And he may have gotten a couple details wrong, but don't think for a moment that John isn't exactly who he said he was. And then he goes on to quote Malachi here, who talks about the coming of Elijah. In Malachi 3, uh, and he quotes Malachi 3, Jesus essentially says, John said he was Elijah. That's exactly who John was. John is Elijah, and it may not be his two-part eschatology that he loves so much, but he's still Elijah. He's still ushering the kingdom of God. And it's even though it's a three-part, not a two-part, he is exactly who he said he was. Okay, go ahead and keep reading. Well, and much like Elijah, uh, you know, he did some things, and then God said, you know what, we got to move on to a different style here. Exactly. But, But he... 
served his purpose. Absolutely. And, and what kind of bigger character? I mean, Man of Transfiguration, we haven't gotten there yet, but Man of Transfiguration, we got Moses and who? And Elijah. Pretty, pretty good, pretty good company, right? Like if I'm going to be, if I'm going to get it wrong, <laughs> I sure want to get it wrong along the veins of Elijah, maybe, um, at least in some ways. And there's a lot of uh, ways you could argue that Moses got it wrong. Like, Absolutely. The the two biggest guys who show up with Jesus on the mountain are right. some of the, you know, just like everybody else yeah, in the Bible. Just really. like every other human being. Absolutely. And yet, unlike any other human being at the exact same time. All right, go ahead and keep seeing what Jesus says here. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Ooh, that's a pretty good epitaph right there, given by Jesus. Among those born of women, which I don't even know what to do with that. Was Elijah born of a woman? Obvious answer there, not a trick question. Well, I mean... Does this text explicitly say that? Like, like, what do you mean? Like, didn't, didn't he just like show up out of nowhere? Well, that's a great point. I love that. Ooh, Bible, Bible jukes right here. Like, that. <laughs> caught me on my unawares. I like that. But yeah, and we're going to assume Elijah was born of a woman. But you're right. Maybe I don't know. But was Moses born of a woman? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. His wonderful parents, Amram and Jacobed. Born of a woman. And I don't know what to do with that. Is John the Baptist greater than Moses? I don't know. But that's a pretty cool thing to hear coming out of Jesus. Like Jesus fired up here. Don't think I'm talking down about John. John's greatest man born of a woman. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yeah. It's good. (laughs) So we're not going to get wound up about greatness because that's not how the kingdom works. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violence people have been raiding it. For all the prophets... Okay, should I jump over to ESV real quick? Not quite. Go ahead and finish okay. in the NIV. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so now, not just quoting the prophecy, Jesus flat out states it. He was the Elijah you've been waiting for. You're waiting for Elijah? You saw him in John the Baptist. That's who he is. Um, go ahead and read that same, not the whole thing. Let's see. Let's read um, from the days, let's see, verse 12. Uh, yeah. Yeah, let's just do verse 12 through 15 in the ESV. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so one of the craziest verses, like one of the hardest passages in my mind to understand before I understood the context of... Some linguistic issues here. So both passages here talk about violence. The word is biatso. Uh, biats, uh, um, the, I'm trying to think of the different forms that it takes, but the root word there in the Greek is biatso. Biatso is used because um, it's an interesting statement. Like the kingdom of God has been suffering violence um, and and violent men. The, I like the old NIV better. The old NIV used to say, and violent men take hold of it. I think that's that's the best translation. But the word is odd because the word gets translated violence. And it's not a bad translation. Biazzo can be translated violent. I think this is one of those passages that show us that, in my mind, I don't think Matthew was written in the Greek. I think Matthew was originally written in the Hebrew. And it's an interesting word choice here by, if it was written in the Hebrew, whoever translated it into the Greek, interesting word choice here, biazzo. Biazzo is used in the Septuagint to translate a word in the Hebrew, and the word is prats. Uh, there's a, there's a story, uh, if you remember the Judah and Tamar story, Brent, do you remember how it ends? Not like the climactic ending of the story, but like the resolution, Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, that is his daughter-in-law to, for those that need to go back and remember, that's the daughter-in-law that he dresses like a prostitute, tricks him into sleeping with him. He wants to have her burned. 
and she essentially gives him back the cord and the signet and says, do you recognize these? And he says, oh, she's more righteous than I. And why do they even know that something's gone wrong? What's up with the daughter-in-law, Brent? She's pregnant. She's pregnant. She's pregnant with? A son. Two sons. Two sons. She's pregnant with twins. Twins. And as the story comes to a close in Genesis 38, you can go back and read it, we're told that there are two sons and they're battling to get out of the womb. Uh, that's and one, the one where one of them has the cord tied yes. around the hand, right? Yeah. One of them sticks their hand out and they tie a red cord around, which that must have been a crazy birth. If anybody knows anything about birth, that's not a good thing. Hand coming out first with twins, not a good thing. Um, and somehow the story has this beautiful ending because the hand comes out, they tie a red scarlet thread on the wrist because you need to identify what, Brent? What's the very important? Firstborn. Firstborn. These two twins, you're going to have to know which one. If they're two boys, you better know which. If they're identical twins, you need to know which one is the Bahor. It's going to be very, very important. Well, that, that arm goes back inside the womb. Can you imagine how crazy this would have been? And then the other brother comes without the scarlet thread. I've always wondered if there was like a joke in the womb. And he's like, here, take this. And they tied it on the other wrist. And then, anyway, <laughs> I don't want this responsibility. No, just kidding. Um, and, but anyway, the other brother, he comes exploding out of the womb. And the idea is that he explodes out. He breaks out. And the, the, this word means explosive. Um. And, and the word there, they call him Perez. We say Perez. But the word comes from the Hebrew Prats because he broke out. He exploded out of the womb in front of his brother. That's the idea of, of Prats. And I think that's the word that Jesus would have used here in the Hebrew. And I think, and you're like, well, I'm glad that you're just arbitrarily choosing what word you want Jesus to say. It's a good point. Any of our listeners that are critical. But I think there's a hint in the text at... at at what Jesus is actually getting at, because it wasn't too long ago, just maybe two podcasts ago, Jesus was quoting which prophet, Brent? What were the last few prophets you could remember Jesus working out of? Oh, let's see. Was he in Jeremiah? He was in Jeremiah. We did talk about Jeremiah. That's correct. He was in somewhere else too. Talked about, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm, it was, was just it? a couple podcasts ago. Micah? Micah. Now, I didn't have you grab this. Sorry, you're unprepared. But can you go and run and grab Micah, the end of chapter two? Micah two is a passage about the Elijah to come. And there's a, go ahead and read the last, uh, I don't know, whatever it is. There's a section there at the end. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like a sheep and a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They okay. Break so, through the gate and go out. Okay. So is that the is that the whole passage right there? And the king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. Okay. So that last passage is what I want. God God starts the passage by saying in Micah, "I'm going to gather you together. You're going to be in captivity. You're going to be in oppression. But I'm going to gather you together like sheep in a sheepfold. And then the last paragraph, God says, "I'm going to send the one who will break open the way." And the idea here is that there's sheep in a sheepfold, and break open the way would be to kick open the gate, would be another way to say that in Hebrew. There's going to be somebody that goes to that gate, that sheepfold, and he's going to kick open the gate. That would be the Elijah, who was the one, that would be the forerunner. That would be the, the one who's going to kick open the gate. And then they are going to... Like, if you've ever seen this, and we actually have a video, I got a video, I saw a video on Twitter shared by Leonard Sweet, and we're going to post it in the show notes, the YouTube video. There have been better ones, but that's the one that I can find right now. Um, but you'll see, this is a, uh, and it's a huge pasture. Like, typically this happens in a very small little sheepfold. Um, 
where they're all just like crammed in there together. Um, the video you'll see is a huge sheep pasture, but you'll watch this whole f- flock of sheep just come from all over because somebody is coming to the gate. And then this person who you can't see because it's just outside of the frame, our greatest, our most favorite part of the video. <laughs> Kind of the gate is uh, more of a an imaginary construct. <laughs> they do pan over at one point where you see it, but it's yeah. mostly not there. Yeah, like somewhere about a minute into the video, like the sheep are running out and they're working so hard to get out of the gate that the sheep themselves kind of close the gate in front of the. Which I think is just a wonderful metaphor for how I feel about the modern evangelical church. But nevertheless, <laughs> <clears throat> enough about that. Uh... <laughs> That's, that's just enjoy hilarious. that about yeah. a minute into the video. But um, but then eventually they come and they open up the gate and the rest of the flock runs out. But it's this image of a sheep, uh, a, a flock of sheep pinned up in the sheepfold. And somebody opens up the gate and they have been waiting all. In fact, I, I saw another video with, with cattle, with cows. Um, and maybe people in North America might be more familiar with that. They've been in they've been in whatever corral all winter, and now it's spring, and you're finally letting them out to pasture. And I saw a video once of cows. They kicked open the gate, and these cows are literally leaping and jumping like little kids. Like, like if if a kid were a Holstein, like they are just like bouncing all over the place as they run into this pasture. And that's the image that Micah is using to talk about God's people. You've been cooped up in captivity, but I am going to send somebody ahead of you and they're going to kick open the gate and you're going to burst out. And then it says the Lord, what, what was the last verse? Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So you have John the Baptist is the one who kicks open the gate and Jesus would be that king. And so now that we have the image that I believe Jesus is calling back to, based on the fact he's talking about John the Baptist, he's just identified him as the Elijah. He get, the next statement after this is he is the Elijah to come. I think this is a statement about prots. I think the word he would have used as a Hebrew rabbi, he's not speaking in Greek. Jesus is speaking in either Hebrew or Aramaic. I believe Hebrew. A lot of scholars believe Aramaic. The word he would have used would have been prots. And it would have called to mind Micah. And now go go back and read that, take your pick, ESV or NIV, and read that passage again now that we have the right biblical image in mind. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, prots in that case. Yes. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So when we hear that, instead of violence, I want us to think explosive. Since the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been explosively advancing. Like it's been blowing out of the gate because John the Baptist came announcing the kingdom, baptizing people in the Jordan, getting people ready. He threw the gate open and we have been running out into kingdom. And the kingdom has been explosively advancing and explosive men take hold of it. Like there's a teaching here I love to do and I do this in Israel where it's, it's, what kind of people are we? Because if we are not at the gate of kingdom, ready to just explode into what God is doing, we're missing out because explosive men take hold of this thing. Explosive men take hold, not the ones sitting in the back going, well, when the rest of the flock makes its way out and it's all kind of clear, then I'll wander through the gate. So in back in uh, Micah, it says, uh, so the one who yes. breaks open the way. Yes. And Elijah is like, am I the only one left? And God's like, no, this remnant. And in Micah, he says, I will bring together the remnant. Ooh, that's so good. 
That is so good. Absolutely. And that's what Elijah couldn't see. He felt like he was the only one. And God said, no, you're just the one that's going to break open the way. Especially in the second Elijah, that that new Elijah, the one who was to come. All right. So this is a long podcast. I will say just just as an indication of how challenging this translation is, both the NIV and ESV have a footnote here. So uh, NIV says subjected to violence. And then the footnote says, or been forcefully advancing. Yes. Which would have perhaps yes. been a better option if they had Much better option. flipped the footnote yes. with the uh, text there. Correct. Uh, and then ESV says, uh, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And then the footnote said, or has been coming violently. Yes. So. Yes. Definitely, definitely a challenging translation as is. Right. Without the context of. Elijah and the Micah passage and everything else. And you can see in both of those footnotes, the idea that we're trying to put forward here in this podcast. All right, let's try to close out this passage here in as quickly but thoroughly as we can. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus here calls back to uh, what we would call Aesop's fables from the region of Sardis modern-day Turkey. Um, there was, uh, before Jesus, there was a, um, a writer who wrote Aesop's fables. And one of the fables talks about the piper. And anywhere that the piper goes, he plays the flute and um, he's able to make creatures and people do whatever it is that they want them to do. Well, there's a disaster coming and the, pi- the piper is trying to, the musician is trying to save uh, the fish. And so he plays... He plays music, trying to get the fish to jump into the boat, saying, listen, I'm here to save you. Like, I'm your salvation, but you have to trust me. And the fish don't jump in the boat. Well, disaster comes. The lake dries up. The fish are gasping for for their breath on the beach as they die. And the character in the fable says, don't look at me. I played a happy song and you didn't dance. I played a sad song and you didn't mourn. Essentially, I tried to save you, but you wouldn't have it. So Jesus, whose last statement, by the way, was he who has ears, let him hear, verse 14, which is a rabbi's way of saying what, Brent? If you understand what I'm saying, then then do what I say. In essence, it's, it's like a rabbi's way of saying, uh, you're going to have to do some work here. I've buried some treasure for you. So if you really want to understand what we're talking about here, it's going to take some work. Like if people are going to want to understand the whole John the Baptist thing, they're going to have to dig into Micah. So Jesus is talking about some rabbinical stuff here, not just flipping out and losing his mind because he's angry about John the Baptist, but he's actually giving a rabbinical teaching here. And he lets you know that he who has ears, let him hear. And he says, what would I, what is this generation like? This generation is like children playing in the marketplace, talking about a fable that talks about their own salvation. I feel like Jesus is saying, this generation is singing songs about their own salvation and they don't even realize that disaster is upon them and their salvation is at hand, in essence. Like you want two-part eschatology. This generation wants a two-part eschatology, but I'm telling you, your, your salvation is already at hand. And if you're, if you're not awake, if you're not explosively advancing, you're going to miss it because it's already here. I think that's an apropos lesson for our world today. I feel like Christians today are just waiting for, it's already here. Like, if we're not taking hold of it now, we're missing it. We're missing out. We're like children in a marketplace singing songs about, and I just think about all the church services we go to, and we sing all these songs and worship and all this stuff. Like, we're like children in a marketplace singing songs about our salvation, not realizing it is already at hand and upon us. Anyway, I just, 
Go ahead, Brent. Finish us out here. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus says, You've got it right in front of you, and no matter what God gives you, you don't like it. We give you John, and you critique him. We give you me, and you critique me. Like children in a marketplace singing songs about the very thing that they're missing. Um, just such a good, such a good thing. Anyway, good teaching. I like it. Prats. Prats. Two, three-part eschatology. Good stuff. All right. Uh, well, hopefully uh, you enjoyed the episode and, and uh, understood what we're talking about. But if you're confused, if you have questions, thoughts you want to wrestle with, uh, hopefully you have a discussion group. But if not, we're here to uh, help you wrestle through that stuff as well. Uh, just go to BaymontDiscipleship.com. You'll find all the ways to get a hold of us. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.